If you have a copy of Scripture with you this evening, uh, I would invite you to open up to Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, It's found on page 863 in the Pew Bibles. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. And fair warning, uh, before I begin, I've been battling a bit of a sickness, bronchitis, we think, throughout this week. So if there is aggressive coughing anywhere in the sermon, my apologies ahead of time. All right, Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Well, in a recent article I came across uh, that talked about work, identity, and worth, Um, The article's writer, Sheeran Edesam, asks this question. Why are our identities and subsequently our self-worth so wrapped up in what we do, produce, and earn? You see, we're a people who are desperately seeking worthiness through accomplishment and through external validation. And even though we know that these things will never truly fulfill or validate us, we chase after them in so many areas of our life. And Edison believes that our natural propensity towards comparison in our society has actually mutated into a contest of worth. We've gone from looking at external means, looking at other people, and maybe innocently comparing with them, and instead we start competing with them. And we do this to try and determine our worth, to try and determine our value, trying to determine our identity. And therefore, Edison says that the solution is to change our perspective on worth from being outward-focused to being inward-focused. She says that we need to stop striving for worth and instead own the worth that is already within us. You see, her point is that we each have inherent worth and that if we simply recognize that, then we will have a planet filled with people who are competent, productive, kinder, more peaceful, and assured of their worth. I mean, if only it were so simple, right? Uh, Now, I do think that people need to be kinder to themselves. I do believe that people have a degree of inherent worth because aren't we all made in the image of God? 
And I do agree that striving for worth and external means will never satisfy us. But that said, I don't think that Edisam's answer is all that compelling. Because even if we stop comparing, even if we stop, start trying to be kinder to ourselves, even if we try to accept this inherent worth that she speaks about, I bet that each and every one of us will still struggle with worthiness in one way or another. And why is that? Well, I think it's because we don't ultimately determine our own worth. You see, Edisam states that worth based on comparison is a lie. But if we follow her, we can just as easily say that worth based on naive self-acceptance is just as problematic. And so we can strive to do and to be more, or we can blindly accept ourselves as worthy, but at the end of the day, where we actually stand is that we stand before an ultimately worthy God. We all stand unworthily before a supremely worthy and holy God. And that determines our sense of worth. And so we stand here before this holy God, and yet, what is our response time and time again? We keep striving, we keep comparing, we keep trying to go after those external means because we so desperately want to be declared worthy in one way or another. But what if you and I could stand worthily before God? What would it take? Well, in tonight's passage, we see a story, we see a picture of worthiness that comes from the most unexpected of people and through the most unlikely of means. And in the story, we get a picture of God's kingdom. And it shows us that because of Christ's worthiness on our behalf, the unworthy, us, are welcomed into the upside-down kingdom through faith alone. And so we're going to consider this under three headings tonight. We're going to look at, first, worthy to save, unworthy to come, and then finally, come to save. So starting with worthy to save, our passage opens on the conclusion, at the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 6. And here he teaches about the upside-down kingdom that welcomes the poor, the weeping, and the oppressed instead of the rich, the laughing, and the flourishing. It's a kingdom where love is shown to enemies and good is done to those who can't return the favor. And up until this point, Jesus has been teasing out this kingdom and his actions and interactions with others. In Luke 4, he casts out demons and heals the sick. In Luke 5, he calls Levi, the tax collector, to come and be a disciple. He dines with tax collectors and with sinners. And in Luke 6, he feeds others and shows mercy and gives rest on the Sabbath. And then in the second half of chapter 6, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he gives a clear picture of the kingdom and introduces a sense of expectancy into Luke 7. You see, he preaches about this kingdom, and it makes his hearers ask, and it makes us ask as we approach Luke 7, it makes us ask the question, how will Jesus display the kingdom? And how will his words translate to reality? He's talking about the kingdom. He's giving all these examples of what it will look like, but how will Jesus actually display this in his own actions? And this sets the scene for Luke 7. And the first thing we see in the story is a man. 
we see a centurion who has a slave who is on the verge of death. And the text says that this slave was highly valued. And what that means is that he was distinguished, that he was honored. It meant that he was probably set over the centurion's entire household because the centurion would have been a wealthy man. He would have had a huge estate filled with a lot of staff tending to all these different areas. And this slave was likely head over all of that. He had shown himself to be distinguished and to be honored. And so this meant that this centurion servant is much more than any other servant in his household, but the head over all of it. It meant that this servant was irreplaceable. It would be like, and so when he fell ill, it would be like a small business owner having his main manager or his right-hand man, his most trusted person, fall ill, and the whole business, therefore, being put at risk. So the servant's life, it's hanging in the balance, but the entire life that the centurion knows is also hanging on by a thread. And so the centurion and his servant, they're in a dire situation, and yet the centurion would have been the last person considered worthy of favor or acceptance in the kingdom. If the Jews were listening to how Jesus was describing the kingdom, he would have been considered utterly unworthy of it. You see, centurions, they were wealthy military leaders sent to imperial-owned territories with groups of 100 soldiers to try and keep the peace. And for them, keeping the peace usually meant just silencing opposition in any way. They would move into these areas and take over and become symbols of imperial oppression and suffering. And worst of all, in the Jewish eye, they were Gentiles. These men were not worthy of the kingdom in the slightest. And yet, as Jesus enters Capernaum, a group of Jewish elders intercept him, and they plead on the centurion's behalf to heal his slave. How unexpected this would have seemed to those who were hearing the story for the first time. A group of Jewish elders pleading before Jesus to heal the centurion's slave. And as they plead his case, one word clearly characterizes the centurion. And that word is worthy. If you look with me at verse 5, they say, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So here is a centurion who has so befriended his Jewish subjects that they gladly appeal on his behalf, who has used his imperial riches to build them a local synagogue, and who publicly honors and cares for the well-being of a slave that others would have treated as mere property. And so despite every expectation that society would have placed upon the centurion, it seems that he might not only understand the kingdom, but he actually might be displaying the kingdom, honoring the lesser, welcoming the stranger, giving to those who can't repay him. It appears that the kingdom has been displayed through the centurion's acts of service. And then we maybe start to wonder and think, well, maybe these elders are right. Maybe this man is worthy. And so Jesus hears this play, Uh, plea, and he sets out to the centurion's house. But once again, he's intercepted by another delegation of people sent by the centurion. But this time, instead of Jewish elders, it's made up of a group of friends. And this time, Jesus hears a very, very different message. If you look with me at verses 6 and 7, 
These friends, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. You see, this worthy man is confessing that he's unworthy to come to Jesus, bringing us to our second point, unworthy to come. Despite all of his power, all of his wealth, all of his honor, the centurion knows that at the end of the day, what he is doing in this request is that he is a Gentile who is asking a Jewish man to visit his home and to heal a dying person. See, the centurion didn't just build that synagogue for show. He is intimately familiar with the God of Israel. And so he understands that the cost of Jesus' presence would be Jesus risking uncleanness and social taboo. Gentiles did not associate with Jews and vice versa. Jews could not come into contact with a dying person lest they become unclean. And so the centurion knows that and he says, therefore, I did not come to you. And there he sits, powerless to save his servant, and yet unworthy to have Christ come and save him as well. Utterly powerless and utterly unworthy. And yet what's fascinating about the centurion is that he doesn't wallow in this reality or try to transcend it, right? Usually when we're in a hard place, we either try to sit there and wallow in what is happening to us, or we try to take it all within our own power. But he doesn't let his eyes linger too long upon his pitiable condition. He doesn't rest his gaze there, but instead he looks beyond himself. Let's read the full uh, passage here in six, verses 6 through 8. He says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers who are under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. In effect, he is saying that I get what I want by word of my power and by virtue of my authority. With a single word, I can get what I want because of my authority. And yet here I am now, unable and unworthy and with no authority to give an answer to my servant's sickness, to give an answer to my servant's impending death. But you, Christ, you, Jesus, are worthy and able to give an answer. And just like me, you only need to say the word. You see, my word commands men, but your word commands life and death itself. Therefore, you don't need to come. You don't need to come, Jesus, because I am not worthy. But you merely need to say the word. And by the authority and power of that word, I know that my servant will be healed. You see, the centurion, he doesn't just display the kingdom in these acts of service. He displays it because he understands the kingdom where others don't. Because whether or not we want to admit it, we can often reduce Christianity. We can reduce the kingdom to a list of virtues that signal our worthiness in one way or another. Theological precision, cultural outrage, devotional fidelity, faithful families. We know that these things don't save us, but maybe deep down we think maybe they make us just a little bit more worthy of Christ, a little bit more worthy to come before him 
like the centurion, perhaps, like those Jewish elders thought. And that is exactly what the elders thought, right? They were telling Jesus, look at this man. See what this man has done. Is he not worthy to have you do this favor? Is he not worthy to have you save his servant? But that's not the kingdom, friends. Good works, even those that resemble the kingdom, cannot save. There is nothing within us that makes us worthy before God and ourselves, that makes us worthy of salvation, but only Christ can make us worthy to stand before God. Only Christ can save us because he alone is worthy. He alone has power over sin and death, and in his kingdom, it's only by admitting your unworthiness, it's only by admitting your unworthiness and casting yourself on his worthiness that you're saved. And this is what the centurion understood, where the Jewish elders didn't. His only hope was to shed any presumption of worth, of power or ability, and to cast himself on the worthiness, authority, power, and grace of Christ to save. And that's exactly what he did. And what's the result? Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Christ gives us one word to describe what the centurion is doing. Faith. He has looked beyond himself and he has looked to the one who has come to save. Our final point, come to save. So here we find Jesus, God in the flesh. And in one of the few times in Scripture, he is the one left marveling instead of making others marvel. The Greek word here, to marvel, it's only applied to Jesus twice in Scripture. The first time is in Mark 6, verse 7, when Jesus marvels at the unbelief of Nazareth. And the second time is here, where he marvels at the belief of the centurion, And it makes us ask, what about the centurion's belief is so marvelous? And how can we express a similar sense of faith? Well, I think there's three things that we need to see about the centurion's faith to see how it made Christ marvel and how we can own it ourselves. First, his faith truly sees Jesus. You see, it's subtle, but in crafting this story, Luke wants us to notice parallels to another Old Testament story about healing and a Gentile military leader. You see, this story has so many parallels to Elisha and the healing of Naaman. Because Naaman has leprosy, and he's sent to the king of Israel to find a cure. And he goes before the king and asks for this cure. And in 2 Kings 5-7, it says, The king tore his clothes and said, Am I God? Am I God? to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. And Elisha, he hears of this, and he has Naaman washed seven times in the Jordan to both be healed and to know that, verse 8, there is a prophet in Israel. And you might be asking yourself, why does this background matter? Why would he be pulling this illusion? Well, you see, the centurion understands that one greater than Elisha has come. That somebody more than a mere prophet in Israel, somebody more than a mere healer in Israel has come. Because unlike that old Israelite king and even the prophets themselves, Christ has power in himself 
and by the authority of his word to kill and to make alive, to heal and to save. And so therefore, when the centurion confesses that Christ has power by his word to heal, he is confessing, and he might even be confessing beyond his own understanding that Jesus is God in the flesh. Because remember what the king of Israel said to Naaman, am I God to kill and to make alive? Well, here the centurion is saying, Lord, you have power to kill and to make alive by the power of your word. He sees that Jesus is God in the flesh. He sees Jesus' true identity, and he places his trust in that Jesus, not in any misconception. Because in Jesus' day, as well as in our own day, it's so often that we see this temptation to domesticate Jesus in one way or another, right? To make him anything other than who he actually says that he is. We'll say Jesus is a great teacher, but he certainly isn't God in the flesh. He's a martyr, sure. He died for what he believed in, but there's no way that he died for the sins of us. Perhaps he helped the sick, but there's no way that he can save people from death, from sin, and from judgment. But you see, the centurion reminds us, reminds the world, that our faith is not placed in a caricature of Jesus. Our faith is placed in Christ himself, the God-man who has come to save sinners and to call them to faith in him alone. So the first thing we see is that his faith truly sees Jesus as the God-man come to save sinners. But the second thing we see is that his faith waits upon Jesus. He sees Jesus. He understands that his only hope is in Jesus. And then what does he do? He waits. And isn't that stunning? Because notice how passive the centurion seems in this, uh, in this whole story. In many ways, he is, the way, he is the person that's moving the story forward, sending delegations, asking Jesus to heal, and yet he's so passive. Notice, he never speaks to Jesus face to face in the story. He's likely at the bedside of his servant the entire time these exchanges are happening. And we see this, and if we were in this situation, we would be asking, how can you be so passive? I mean, think about it. What wouldn't you do to try and save something or somebody that was so valuable to you? Whether it would be a loved one, whether it would be a friend or a family member or anything. What wouldn't you do to save something so valuable? Wouldn't you try and do anything within your power to secure that salvation? Wouldn't you try to move mountains to get what you wanted? You see, the centurion's passive trust doesn't the centurion's passive trust doesn't often uh, show what we tend to do. We see the picture of his passive reliance upon Christ, and yet when we are in similar situations, doesn't our first reaction tend to be to respond from a, st a stance of anxiety, a stance of trouble, a stance of doubt, that our faith begins to erode away in the actual midst of difficult situations? You see, in one of my favorite books and movies, uh, a character tells a young boy a story about a situation very similar to the centurions. And in the story that he tells, a pastor preaches against a local apothecary, which is an old word for like a medicine man that uses herbs and all the rest. And he would preach against this apothecary week in and week out until he loses all of his business. 
But then one day, the pastor's daughters, his daughters that are precious than anything else in his life, fall ill. And just like the centurion's servant, they're on the verge of death. And what does the pastor do? He prays. He tries to find help in modern medicine. But then in the midst of that difficult situation, in the angst of actually struggling through that, his faith begins to wear away. And what does he do? He gets on his horse in the middle of the night and he rushes off to see the apothecary. And he goes to his door, he knocks, and he says, will you help my daughters? And the apothecary says no. And the daughters eventually pass away. And the boy, when he hears the story, he's outraged. He's outraged at the apothecary. But then the one telling the story actually explains to the boy that it's the pastor who he should be angry at. He explains that the apothecary was greedy and rude and bitter, but that the pastor was nothing. The pastor was nothing. And he explains this by going on to say that belief is half of all healing. Belief in the cure, belief in the future that awaits. And here's a man who lived on belief, but who sacrificed it at the first challenge, right when he needed it most. He was a man who believed selfishly and fearfully. How often we're like this pastor, no? Believing selfishly, believing fearfully, perhaps even being tempted to abandon our faith when we need it the most. We claim belief, but in moments of trial or difficulty, I know that we can all be tempted to hedge our bets, to try and place our functional trust in something other than Christ. But the centurion reminds us of what it means to actually live on belief. He sees and believes in the cure in Jesus He believes selflessly and confidently in the future that awaits because of Christ. His faith truly sees and waits upon Jesus. And how do we grab hold of such an extraordinary faith? How can we make this our own? Well, it's by recognizing the final aspect of the centurion's faith. Third, his faith is ordinary. And this is what I want us to see more than anything else tonight. As extraordinary as the centurion's faith is in this context, as extraordinary as it is that he is professing things even beyond his understanding that Christ is the God-man, we need to recognize how from our perspective, how ordinary this faith is. Because think about it, the faith that we're called to display is the exact same as the centurion's, right? Jesus calls us to believe in him sight unseen. He calls us to trust in the power of his word to heal and to save us. He calls us to see and to wait upon him by faith. He calls us to abandon any inherent worth or power to save ourselves and to rest upon him alone for salvation. See, the faith that made Christ marvel is the very same faith that he has called each and every one of us to. And that if you don't know him this evening, it's the same faith he calls you to now to see your need, to see that you are unable to save yourself and that your only hope is in him, the one who is worthy to save, the one who came to live a perfect life for you, to die on the cross for your sins and to present you blameless and worthy and without reproach before God. You see, Jesus didn't come to welcome in the worthy. He came to save the utterly unworthy. 
So abandon any claim to self-worth and rest on the riches of his righteousness alone for salvation because he alone is worthy. He lived a sinless life on our account. He died for our sins to present us before God. And therefore, this means that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to make yourself more or less worthy before God. There's absolutely nothing that you can do. If you are in Christ, it's his worthiness that presents you blameless before God. And if you are not in him, there is nothing that you need to do to clean yourself up in order to make yourself worthy to come, to repent, to place your faith in Christ. He merely tells you to come. Come to him. Place your faith in him. See your need and his worth. It's Christ alone who makes us worthy to stand before God in this upside-down kingdom. And we can only grab a hold of this Christ through faith. So see him. Embrace him. Rest upon him alone as your only hope in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, thank you so much that you sent your Son to come to this world, to take on flesh, that the second person of the Trinity, fully God, uh, infinite and eternal and perfect and holy and transcendent and above all things, took on flesh, entered into time, entered into space, came to this world to live a life of lowliness, to live a life of shame, to die on a cross, to suffer the wrath of God, to live perfectly in our place, all so that we could be saved. Worthless sinners that have no right to stand before you, and yet nevertheless he came to love us, out of his own free will and mercy, out of a promise that you have declared before the foundation of the world to save those whom you would call, Lord. We are so grateful for this blessing. We are so grateful for this truth, this truth that makes us sons and daughters, this truth that makes us clean and pure before you, this truth that allows us to understand the reality that we are new creations and that you call us to live in light of that reality until you perfect that reality in glory when we will stand before you face to face. And so, Lord, we thank you for that mercy. We thank you for that grace. We thank you that it's through faith alone that we grab hold of everything that Christ has done, that we abandon ourselves and trust in him alone. And as we go out into our weeks, Lord, I pray that we can continue to cling to Christ by faith in the midst of all of our difficulties, in the midst of situations that are outside of our control, that stretch us to our limits, that test our anxieties and our fears and all the rest. Help us to remember the faith of the centurion and remember how ordinary that is, that we may see you and rest upon you and trust that you will deliver us, that you will see us through every trial and hardship, that you care for us, that you love us, and that you will glorify yourself in the midst of everything you carry us through, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.